In December 2014, the George Barna Research Group published an article titled, Ten Facts About America's Churchless. From a massive collection of data that included the results from 21 surveys over a period of six years, totaling more than 23,000 interviews of U.S. adults, the Barna Group revealed that the number of unchurched people in America alone would make the eighth most populous country in the world. Now by churchless or unchurched, and I use those words in air quotes, Barner refers to those who have not attended a Christian church for six months or more, except for a wedding or a funeral. Now, based on their mountain of data, they have hypothesized that the, the total U.S., uh, of the total U.S. population, including adults and children, 156 million are unchurched, compared to the churched, that number 150. Nine million. Now, according to their data, the vast majority of this 156 million, these these um, uh, unchurched people, they, uh, they 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 say they state that 77 percent previously attended church. For that reason, Barna suggests that we might label this group as de-churched people. Most are men, and the largest percentage per capita live on the Pacific Coast. Welcome to the mission field. This is where we live. Now, I would dare say that among these that are unchurched, the churchless, the de-churched, I would dare say that most of them would say, remember, 77% of these people at some point were part of a church. I would dare say that the vast majority of these, these people would say, oh, But I still believe. What does that mean? Still believe in what? You remember the words, um, the the Frank Sinatra tune, um, I believe. A a deep uh, faith statement, by the way. 
I believe, I believe, so the song goes. I believe in wishing wells. I also believe in a lot of things. Things that the daisy tells. Really. I believe, I believe in four-leaf clover. I believe that that a four-leaf clover brings lots of luck, lots of joy, lots of happiness. I believe those things. And when it's Christmas time, I believe in Santa Claus. Why do I believe? I guess that I believe because I believe, I believe. I, I believe the wishes... The, the dreams come true. That if you wish for a dream by a wishing well, don't tell the wish or you'll break the spell. It may sound naive, but that's what I believe. Kind of a vacuous, empty, nonsensical faith is that. Is that what people would say that formerly went to church, now are part of the unchurched, the churchless, the dechurched? Well, they say, well, no, I believe in God. I believe God exists. Would they say, I, I believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross for sinners. Would they say, well, I, I believe the Bible is God's revelation to us. My friends, listen. If those people say, Those things, if that's the content of their faith, they are qualified to be a demon. Because the demons believe that God exists and that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and that the Bible is God's authoritative self-revelation. The demons believe that. Now, George Barna and his crew in their, ser- their surveys, did not ask about belief. They asked about church attendance. I think the two are very closely related together. They asked about church attendance because that's easy to, to quantify. Did you or did you not? Uh, they didn't ask about belief because that's much more difficult to nail down, much more nuanced. But the two are tightly woven together. Let me show you. Let me explain that. In in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, I'm going to rifle through a number of of, uh, Scripture references. I'll, I'll give them to you. I printed them in your notes. You'll be able to uh, um, you'll be able to track them down later. In Ephesians two, the end of the chapter, Paul says, "We, speaking of, of 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 Christians, those who have been called out of Judaism, called out of their pagan Gentileness, uh, we are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God has established." a new community, the church, for those who have been called out of the world's system. Jesus calls us into the church, into this new community that is characterized by love for one another. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, said Jesus. 
that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one for one, uh, if you have love for one another. Now, this kind of loving relationship, this, this kind of relationship, this kind of new community is, is, is not optional. Jesus said in John 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The author of Hebrews warned us against the sin of forsaking our own assembly together. The Apostle John adds this helpful explanation. John chapter 3, verse 36. You know what? I think I'm going to have you turn there. John chapter 3. John 3, last verse in that chapter. He who believes in the Son of God has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. There's a contrast here between those who believe and those who do not believe. But notice that the opposite of believing in the Son, first part of verse 36, the opposite of that is not disbelieving the Son, but what? What is it? What does the text say? Not obeying the Son. So we say that we Love Jesus, we obey Jesus, we listen to Jesus' words. If we do love him, if we are his disciples, we will keep his commandments. We will keep his word. We will hear it and we will heed it. There is obedience behind our words, our Profession is not just verbalizations. It is lived out by our obedience. So when we talk about those that are churchless, unchurched, dechurched, are we talking about those who are not in a state of obedience to the Lord? Now, I, I, I realize that, that, um, that there are, are um, many other factors here, and somebody who hasn't been uh, attending a church for a six-month period of time might have all kinds of legitimate reasons, and they may indeed be among God's saved, His redeemed. But in the main, those who are genuinely saved, those who are um, uh, redeemed people, will be those found among God's people. This morning in our continuing study through the fourth gospel, 
we come to the end of John chapter 12. And in this uh, last section of chapter 12, which is a rather large chunk uh, for us normally to consider, verses 36 through 50, um, Jesus uh, has some, some words that are a summary of his teaching at the very end, and prior to that is, is a, uh, a commentary by John. And it, too, is a summary of uh, what we find elsewhere earlier in John's gospel. Collectively here, verses 36 to, uh, to, to 50, help, help us understand the nature, the why of unbelief. Let me read our text, um, and then we'll, um, we'll look more carefully at it. Middle of verse 36. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, whom has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me, does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me, sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. An anatomy of unbelief. Why is it that people do not believe? You think of, of, of what, we've, what we've already covered in the earlier parts of John's gospel. 
All of the things that Jesus had said, things he said to Nicodemus, things that he said to the woman at the Samaritan well, the things that Jesus did, turning water into wine like that? Giving sight to a man who had been born blind? We don't even know if he had eyes. We don't know if they were even formed. And yet, Jesus, through this this miracle, gave him perfect sight. And then, how how, how could we not talk about Jesus raising his friend Lazarus, who had been dead and buried for four days, Scripture says, middle of verse 36, these things, referring backwards to, to Jesus' comment that, that he's the, he is the light, walk in the light, uh, believe in the light, earlier part of verse 36, that you might become sons of light. These things, Jesus spoke. And he went away, hid himself from them. His time had not yet come. This was... Um, probably Tuesday, maybe Wednesday of Jesus' Passion Week. It would be the next day, or two days from then, on Thursday that he would have his final meal, the Passover celebration with his disciples. That gets us into chapter 13. So for these next couple of days, Jesus pulls away from a public appearance. And it says in verse 37 that though he had performed so many signs before him, before them, yet they were not believing in him. Quantity of signs and quality of signs. By quality of signs, we mean Jesus didn't just um, find somebody who had a headache and say, Uh, be healed and the headache went away no we're talking about jesus giving sight to somebody born blind raising somebody who had been dead for four days so many signs of this quality jesus did and yet they didn't believe and you have to ask yourself the question why Oh, I'll cut people in this day and era uh, all kinds of slack because, well, they may not have heard what Jesus has said. And they certainly didn't see what Jesus did. They don't believe. Why, why did these Jews not believe after all that Jesus said and all that Jesus did? Here's one possibility from the pen of Richard Dawkins, by trade, an evolutionary biologist, by conviction, a flaming atheist. He said this, if you have a faith, it is probably the same faith as your parents and grandparents. No doubt, soaring cathedrals, stirring music, moving stories and parables help a bit. 
But by far, the most important variable determining your religion is the accident of your birth. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. I dare say that Richard Dawkins would say the reason why people don't believe is because they have bought into uh, this, this system without thinking that they have inherited from their parents and their grandparents. What they need, he would argue, is to be enlightened, for them to step away and think for themselves. The Apostle John has another explanation of why people don't believe. I think it's a little better, honestly. Verse 38. Verse 37 says they they were not believing. They were still not believing in Him. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke Lord, who has believed a report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now that particular quote from the prophet Isaiah comes from the famed chapter 53. That's the great chapter that talks about the suffering servant. Keep your finger here and John will be back. I want you to follow along with me as we look carefully at Isaiah 52 and 53. 53 verse 1 is where Paul, uh, rather John gets the quote. But I want you to look at chapter 52 verse 13. Isaiah 52 verse 13. Behold, the prophet writes on behalf of the Lord, Behold, my servant, that's um, uh, Messiah, behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Now the next verse seems to say something quite different and causes us to shake our head um, like, how, 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 how does this fit? Well, This one will have an appearance. Middle of verse 14. His appearance was marred more than any man. So he is is high, he is exalted, and yet he is marred to an unrecognizable point. From the highest of heights... Now we are at the lowest low. Verse 15. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what they had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. If we were to visualize these verses 
we might visualize a yo-yo. Coming up, going down. Coming up, going down. Exalted, marred beyond recognition. Then, when the kings of the earth, those who are of greatest power and authority, when it finally enters into their mind and they get it, they perceive, they understand, they are amazed. They are flabbergasted. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. Next verse, chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed the words that we have said? Our message. Who has believed the works of Messiah, the arm of the Lord? Answer, precious few. Why is that? Jesus has has done all these wonderful things, said these wonderful things. How, How is it that people cannot grasp, understand what God is doing in the Christ? Verse 53, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 53, verse 3. This one, this, this servant of Yahweh, he was despised, forsaken of men. He was like one, middle of verse 3, from whom men hide their face. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Why not? John helps us. Back in chapter 12. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Their unbelief. And then he quotes, to whom has, who has believed a report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Well, well people, people haven't, uh, haven't embraced that, haven't believed it. Why? Verse 39. For this reason, they could not believe. Colon, and he goes on, he's going to quote Isaiah again. Before we get there. John says, they did not, they, they did not possess the ability. They didn't have the capacity to believe. They could not believe. That's that's what he says right there in verse 39, right? They could not believe. I'm reminded of uh, chapter 6. We we spent some time here when we were in chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Universal negative, no one. Universal inability, no one can come 
universal condition, no one can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. In other words, to answer the question, why does someone not believe? The answer to that question is, 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 is simply this. They don't believe because of God's sovereign choice. Be sure to listen all the way to the end. There are some who would oppose this and say, oh yeah, but what, what, what about those people that want to believe and this verse says that they can't. My friends, by the nature of who we are as fallen, unredeemed people, we don't want to believe. We don't want God to have anything, any part in our life. We want to do and live our life on our terms. Thank you very much. God just you, you do whatever you want to do, you need to do, um, but uh, I'm going to do my own thing. Thank you. But, well, well John, John helps us out here. He says, uh, he, he, uh, he, he gives us uh, another reference to look up in our text, verse 40. He quotes from verse 10 of the famed sixth chapter of Isaiah's prophecy. This is the reason, John says, that we cannot believe. We are, we are dependent upon, utterly dependent upon God to move, to give us the capacity, the ability to believe. All right. Now, back in Isaiah's prophecy. Keep your finger here in John. Back in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the this is the the wonderful chapter that opens up with the words in year of King Uzziah's death I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with his train that filled the temple. Now, in the in the next verse in John 12 in verse 41 we, uh, we read, these things Isaiah said because he saw, that is, John saw, I'm, I'm sorry, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. So, so, so back in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on the throne and his robe filled the temple, Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ. And this is what he reads, what he he hears and then he writes. And when we read in verse 10, render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Back in our text, the, uh, the quotation that 
John uses uh, the, the reference from the, from, uh, from the, the Septuagint uh, to the best of my recollection. He, the, the, the verbs are much more um, active. Notice in verse 40, he, that is speaking of Christ, he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes, perceive with their hearts, and be converted. So here we have an interesting situation. Jesus wants the people around him, the Jews in particular that he is, is speaking to, to believe on him. He wants them to not only hear what he has to say, he wants them to obey it. He has shown them many signs, and yet they continue to be unbelieving, unchurched, churchless, dechurched people. And yet here in verse 40, we find that God is the one, Jesus is the one, who has stopped up their ears and blinded their eyes. All right, you got to stick with me here. God is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who, who, who freely, of his own volition, opens the eyes, unstops the ears of those who are, are by nature blind and deaf. In Exodus chapter 33, we find the Lord revealing himself to Moses in a specific way that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 9. And in Romans 9, uh, beginning at first, verse 15, we read this. God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. You might find benefit turning to that passage in John chapter, I'm sorry, in Romans chapter 9, verse 16. It says this, it does not depend, that is, our salvation does not depend on the man who wills, speaking of the choice of man. Salvation is not purely a choice that man makes. Does man have a, have a choice that they must make? Absolutely. But the point is, salvation is not initiated by my choice. It's initiated by God. He will have mercy on whom he has mercy, compassion on whom he has compassion. And after I have received by his grace his mercy and his compassion, now I have a new nature. Now I have a new willingness. Now I have a new ability. Now I have a new capacity to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. And I have a choice to make. 
But my salvation is not dependent upon my choice. It's dependent upon the Lord. It, our salvation, does not depend upon the man who wills, makes a choice, or the man who runs. That is, my salvation is not dependent upon my actions. Do I have to act? Absolutely. But it is not initially dependent upon my action of running or doing good deeds. No, God has created me for good deeds, but this is after I have received His gift of grace. Salvation does not depend on a man who, who wills or the man who runs, but on God who shows mercy. We see the, the, uh, the hand of God, um, the sovereign hand of God uh, throughout the Scriptures. Here, here's just, a, just a, a, a three verses. Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 115, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. God is the one who is large and in charge. God is the one who is the sovereign over everything, even our salvation. A.W. Pink in his book, The Sovereignty of God, says this, to say God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat his counsels, thwart his purpose, or resist his will. Salvation is of the Lord. Last week we were in 1 Peter chapter 1 for our Easter celebration and our Easter text. And... In, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 1, we, uh, we, we read this as Peter opens his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. God is the one who was responsible for faith. He gifts us with faith. He enables us to believe. So why is it that there are those who are unbelievers? They have not received this gift of God's grace. By God's sovereign choice, they do not believe. Now, listen all the way to the end and on to the second page of your notes because there's another reason why people don't believe. We're looking at the anatomy of unbelief. God has ape a hand in this. Man has a hand in this. If you notice in our text, John chapter 12, verse 42, many, even of the rulers, believed in Jesus. 
But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Now we'll deal with verse 42 in a minute, but at verse 46, this is, this is, a, this is a, a, a haunting verse. These people that, um, verse 42 says that they believe. In, in what sense, I ask? They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They valued the applause from fellow sinners more than the applause of Almighty God. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your heavenly dwelling. I remind you of the nature of fallen man. I put some notes here for you to to follow along. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Mankind, apart from the work of God, is spiritually dead. John chapter 8. We are slaves of sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We are unable to discern spiritual truth. We, we might use God. We might use God's people. We might even show up for church services with regularity because we want something from God or we want something from God's people. If that's the case, they wouldn't be on Barna's list of the unchurched or the churchless. But that doesn't guarantee that they're going to be in heaven with us when we die. Unbelievers don't want God meddling in their life. And so we have these two truths that are juxtaposed to one another. We have God's sovereign choice and man's Sinful choice. We find this on the pages of Scripture. Um, At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we find that amazing and incredible showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. Moses, speaking on God's behalf, commands Pharaoh to let my people go, to which he famously and repeatedly said, no. Well, the Scriptures tell us that Pharaoh hardened his heart and almost equal number of times do we find the Scriptures say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In Genesis chapter 45, in verse 45, in verse 5 of, of that particular chapter, we, we find um, Joseph acknowledging that his brothers sold him into slavery with evil intention. And in that very same verse, and the verses following, we find uh, uh, Joseph rehearsing the fact that God sent him to Egypt. 
So which was it? Yeah. God sent Joseph to Egypt? True. God's, or rather, Joseph's brothers sent him to Egypt? Also true. My friends, try to wrap your mind around this idea. God can ordain evil without evil intention. Try it again. God can ordain evil without any evil intention. He can even use evil deeds like unbelief to accomplish His purposes. In his very helpful and very well-articulated book titled, What About Free Will? Reconciling Our Choices with God's Sovereignty, Scott Christensen, the author, argues the position that's called biblical compatibilism. And he explains, biblical compatibilism seeks to demonstrate one simple reality. Every human action in the course of history has a dual explanation, one divine and one human. And then he quotes from uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 16. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. He continues, God secretly stands behind all the plans of man, directing each set of footsteps along the specific course he designed. His guiding providence is like a transparent, colorless, odorless gas, the fuel that fires up the burners of human action. Yet he does so without undermining human freedom and responsibility. Elsewhere in his book, he writes that sinful man is not aware of God's sovereign hand in the midst of decisions that we make every day. He writes, Sin constrains the will from choosing what is truly righteous. And yet many are unaware that such constraints exist because they freely choose to act in accordance with their sinful desires. So when we're talking about an anatomy of of unbelief, we have to put alongside God's sovereign choice, man's sinful choice. Both are operative. So, in our text, back to verse 42, I promised I would, 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 would comment on this. John says, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in Jesus, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogues. The Pharisees controlled the synagogues. That was church for the Jew. 
So if you confessed Jesus, aligned yourself with Jesus, said you believed in Jesus, you were out of there. You were instantly unchurched, dechurched, churchless. These people, John says, there were many of them. They believed in Jesus. But, nevertheless, however, yet, they loved the approval of men rather than approval of God. That is not even close to count-the-cost kind of faith. So in what sense can we say that these, 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 uh, these believers believed in these rulers, believed in Jesus. Honestly, I'm struggling with this, with this verse a little bit. Because their, their so-called faith is inadequate, spurious, half-baked. It appears to be a, a quiet profession without a possession. They didn't even want to say the words that they were interested, drawn to, attracted to, believing in Jesus. Didn't even want to utter those words for fear they'd get kicked out, excommunicated. You're on your own. The synagogue was the life. It was the hub of, of, the, of, of, of the Jewish community. I wonder if this is an explanation. Acts chapter 6. Verse 7 reads this way. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now this is after the death of Christ. This is after the resurrection of Christ. This is the early church in action. And there were these priests. We could call them rulers among the Jews. Spiritual rulers. There were these priests that were coming, becoming obedient to the faith. So, so back, back in our text, in when John's talking about these who, who believed in Jesus, were they halfway down the spiritual birth canal? Were they half born again? Had it not yet sunk in? Had they, had they not counted the cost of being a disciple of Jesus? I'm not exactly sure. They believed in some way, but refused to confess him, and were more interested in the applause of men than the applause of God. Hmm. Well, Jesus weighs in on this 
um, on this uh, on this question of unbelief. And he says, verse forty four, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my saying, he does not and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who has sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus completely stays on task, on his mission. He is there representing the Father. You see Jesus, you see the Father. You hear Jesus, you hear the Father. There is perfect Trinitarian unity here. Jesus said, my, 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 my task in, in this mission is to save and to call people to hear and to heed my word. Said, Jesus said, I'm, I'm not here to, to judge. Oh, that'll come. But not the first time. The first time he came seeking and saving the lost. And so he's calling people to believe. Listen to what I'm having to what, what I say. L- watch what I am doing. What I am saying comes from the Father. What I am doing comes from the Father. Jesus says to believe in me is not to believe in a in 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 a, in a mere human uh, person as if Jesus was merely a prophet. No, he is the word incarnate. Hmm. Words are cheap, are they not? Um, and, and there are those who, who uh, outside of the church, who will say, well, yeah, but I, I, I still believe. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has this to say. You will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Our obedience to the Lord is evidence of changed, transformed, redeemed life. Are we going to do it perfectly? No. But when the Lord convicts us of sin, what will be true in the believer is he or she will say, Lord, I, I, 
I have wronged you. I have offended you, and I I don't want to do that again. Give me the strength, the wisdom, the skill, the knowledge, whatever it might be, so that I can avoid that which is displeasing to you. What what marks a, a genuine believer is repentance. I close with this. A uh, statement by uh, Horatius Bonar, uh, the, the uh, um, prince of Scottish hymn writers. He said this, In all unbelief, there are these two things. A good opinion of one's self and a bad opinion of God. Or an inadequate opinion of God, at least. When I think more of myself than I ought, when I think less of God than I ought, I am flirting with unbelief if I'm not walking that way already. Though in truth, apart from the grace of God, I am condemned, and justly so. I'm that bad. I need a Savior. I need the Savior, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, for there is no one else. Pray with me. Our blessed God, we thank you for your patience with us. You are long-suffering toward us that we might repent, that we might walk with you. Cause our life to be reflective of the grace that we have been given. Give us the strength and the wisdom and the skill and the capacity that we need to honor you with the choices that we make. We desire that you be the one that is exalted. We seek your applause, not that of men. Give us a heart of faith, a heart of trust. that we might be pleasing to you and instructive for this generation in which you have placed us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.